Acts 15, 1 through 29, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute with, and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to, Israel, go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through grace, through the grace of our Lord Jesus, that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling them, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest time and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. 
You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Dawn, thank you. Thank you for reading. Uh, well, morning, everyone. If we've not met, my name's uh, uh, Matt Fuller. I'm senior minister here. And uh, we're turning back to the book of Acts. Uh, and we'll be in the uh, book of Acts for the next um, month or two, I think, uh, pretty much until Easter. So uh, let me, um, on this well-focused day, let me uh, lead us in prayer, uh, and then we'll jump in together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that it is, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved. That spectacular gift, help us to understand more of the simplicity of that, but for those of us who have been Christians a while, are going to be uh, shocked, perhaps, by the generosity of that, but also to know that it's a message that is for the whole of your world. Be at work amongst us, we pray, Father, this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts 15, then, it, it's a chapter to remind us that this gospel message, it's not just for you and me. It's not just for our family and, and friends or, or work colleagues. It really is a message for the world. A message for all the different races that are in London, the different faces across our planet, all the different places, obscure mountains that you may want to go to. It's the same message for everyone. It's the same message but it really is for everyone, every race, in every place, needs this. And so partly what we're doing today is just reminding ourselves that, um, the preacher John Stott's words often use, we must be global citizens with a global vision because we follow a global God. And it's not okay to shrink our ambitions down to something very small, such as our own lives or even our own city. It's not okay, for he is the Lord of the earth. I often say that on this Sunday, we do have once a year to sort of have a little focus here. We're trying to do three things. One is just to lift our eyes off the immediate to see what God is doing in the wider world. That would be the first uh, the second is to remind us as a church family who our mission partners are, if we've forgotten, an encouragement to, to commit to them. Uh, thirdly, for some, and it might be the majority of course, but for some to think you could go. You could go to this world. Let me just encourage you one or two things, uh, again reading uh, uh, this week, uh, about what God is doing in the world. See, over time makes a big difference. And, well, let me just throw these out at you. In uh, the continent of Africa, Best estimates, and of course, you know, these things are not precise, but best estimates. In 1950, there are about 15 million Protestant Christians in the whole of Africa. Uh, in 2017, that's 230 million. So from 15 to 230, that's, that's good growth. Any company would be happy with that growth. It's wonderful. Perhaps more surprising to my mind, in Asia, in uh, 1950, estimates about 8 million Protestant Christians... Now in 2017, just shy of 100 million in that time frame from 1950 to today. That's phenomenal. It's extraordinary. And you could sit in the UK, perhaps even in Europe, and think, 
well, it's all a bit small and perhaps getting smaller. Well, in one sense, that is, of course, true. Uh, 16% of Protestants in the world live in Europe. That'll be less than 10% by 2050, but mainly because of growth elsewhere. So God is growing his church. The Lord Jesus does that. Not in all places to the same extent at all times, but he does do that. Can't be immune to it or, or unobservant. We do need to lift our eyes sometimes just of what God is doing locally to what he's doing in the world. We need to pray for our mission partners. Some do need to go. Here's the sort of less exciting, or not exciting, less um, encouraging stats. That globally, 86% of those who would self-describe as either Buddhist, Muslim, or Hindu don't know a Christian. They don't know anyone who is a Christian. Therefore, what they assume Christianity is, of course, is bound to be distorted. 86% globally of Buddhists, Hindus, and Muslims. Of course, the majority of those are in the Middle East, Asia, Central Asia, where uh, Ben will drift to. But, But then some need to go. But for most of us, there's quite a lot here, quite a lot in London, that would still wouldn't know anyone who'd call themselves a Christian. Well, you and I can certainly do something about that. So this Sunday, uh, Acts 15 is a good place to be. Now, if you are just joining us today, uh, slowly, we've been working our way through the book of Acts, uh, off and on. The purpose of the whole book really is certainty. Right at the beginning, when Luke writes, he says, I'm writing all this so that you may be certain of the truth. Certain about the truth of the gospel, these things really happen. Certain about the content of the gospel, so you understand what the message is. And, And certain about the innocence of the gospel, it's good for the world. It's those three. But Acts 15 is mainly about content. Could we just be clear on what the content of what the message of Christianity is? It's a key chapter for that. Or you could phrase it like this. What conditions must we keep in order to be saved? What conditions? What what does any individual need to do if they're going to be a believer? If they're going to be saved? What are the conditions? And uh, really, Acts 15 will say there are none. We'll nuance that a little bit, but there's none. Now, we're in one section, some will remember. Uh, chapter 12, verse 25, all the way to chapter 16, verse 5, all one section. Uh, Jerusalem starts to fade into the background. Indeed, after today, we barely hear of it. And Peter fades into the background, having been the main character. And Antioch becomes the center for uh, world missions in this little section, telling everyone... Uh, from Antioch, what Jesus has done. Until now then, until uh, really chapter 12, it's been Jewish believers, sort of Jews who'd become believers in Jesus Christ in the first 11 chapters, almost universally, but now the message is permeating a little bit and it's non-Jews, Gentiles, are hearing and becoming Christians. So the question comes up then, well, what, these Gentiles, what do they need to do? Do they need to become like Jews? Is this just Judaism sort of expanding out? Or or, or what what are we expecting of them? What conditions do we need to tell them they need to keep? That's the issue here. Of course, in one sense, that might seem a little bit distant to you and me. 
not many become a Christian in 21st century in London and say, right, I've become a Christian. Do I get circumcised? Uh, what does Moses say about the law? Uh, no, no, don't ask those questions. But what conditions are there upon salvation? That's a real question. Okay, so I'm calling myself a Christian now. What do I have to do? How, how can I be certain that God accepts me? What, uh, what, what does it take to guarantee my place in heaven? How can I be confident that God loves me? Okay, I trust Jesus. Now what do I do? So what does Acts 15 takes us back to some pretty basic Gospel maths, or something is sometimes called. Uh, I don't know if we've got a little, these two, this is a bit naff way of putting at it, but uh, in simple terms. Um, there we go. It's sort of simple truths for a Christian. You trust in the grace of Jesus, that, that means you're saved. That's it. But trust in the grace of Jesus and add something else. Well, hold on a minute. That, that's not the gospel. Trust in Jesus plus you have to get circumcised here at Acts 15. Trust in, Jesus, in the grace of Jesus plus you have to keep the law of Moses, perhaps even the Ten Commandments. That's not the gospel message at all. What they're going to talk about here is that Jesus has done everything for me. Let me try that. This is a slightly twee contrast, but uh, I have two, uh, two options here. Option one, option two. Option one is just a gift. It's, uh, it's my very large checkbook, and I haven't written a name, but uh, you can have this afterwards. Uh, but it is a check for one million pounds, okay? It's just a gift. No obligations, no strings attached, that's a gift. Okay? Or I have here uh, quite a detailed contract. And the contract says this, I give you a signing-on bonus of 400,000 pounds, if you then work for me for 30 years at 20k a year. So at the end of 30 years, you get a million pounds. And it's pretty generous because you get a signing-on bonus of 400k. Although, to be honest, your annual salary is not epic. Um, so you get a million pounds both ways. One is a gift, you just take it. One is a gift, 400k, but you've got to work another 30 years to get it. Now, which would you prefer? Well, unless you're sort of slightly screwy, you, you, you take the gift. I'm not that nice a guy to work for. You can ask the staff. <laughs> you take the gift. So just hear the message of Jesus Christ, his salvation, it's a gift. It's all done. It's not that he begins and gives you a sort of whoop, there's a start, and now off you go, and you finish it off for the next few years. It's a gift. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that. I mean, we've, perhaps we forget how bewildering that is. I was sat with lunch with someone on Friday, and uh, we, we got talking about this. Uh, he was listening. Oh, he's a very bright man, and he was listening, and he's clearly understood what I was saying. And so he said, right, I don't, but that's crazy. I mean, if that's true, and you become a Christian, why would you live a good life? If you know that Jesus has done everything for you, what stops you misbehaving from that point on? Of course, you, 
The answer is you don't want to as a Christian. As I said to him, you could be an adult bloke in your 50s and and, uh, your parents are elderly and um, you've got no problems financially, your life is great. Uh, You're you're mature, but your your parents are elderly, they need your help uh, and they could do with you caring for them. And you do. And you do it in part because you think, wow, they've done so much for me over the years. But mainly you do it because they're your mum and dad and you love them and you care for them and you want to help them. You do it because they're great. There's a relationship there. I said, you become a Christian. Yeah, of course, one sense, you could just, well, you could say to your parents, naff off, I'm a mature adult, I don't need you, go away. You could do that, but you just wouldn't. So when you're a Christian, you say, well, Jesus has done everything for me. And I love him. And I know I owe him a great amount, but I'm not doing it out of, out of debt. I'm doing it because I think he's wonderful. That's the impact of grace, this message of grace. Jesus has done everything for me. And if you want to share the gospel with the races of London, the places of the world, you take a message of grace. Be careful that you don't impose other cultural norms upon them. Let's turn then to, uh, to this text uh, in detail. Let, let me show you. That's the issue in uh, chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. What are the conditions that needed to be added? So let me, uh, let me show you. Here we are in chapter 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Did you see that? To be saved, you have to trust Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And be circumcised. And keep the customs taught by Moses. Similarly, in verse 5, same issue. Some of the believers who belonged to the party, the Pharisees, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. It's the same issue there again, you see. Jesus, plus keep the law of Moses, only then can these Gentiles be saved. In the sense, and in the face of that Bad gospel maths. Well, there's going to be a fight. So verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute and debate with them. They're having none of this. This is very important. Uh, and so there's a conference. They get together in, uh, in Jerusalem. And everyone who's anyone is there, verse 6, the apostles, the elders, they met to consider this question. And uh, here's what they worked out. Okay, what conditions do we want to uh, impose? None. So let's look at it in these ways. Peter's going to say salvation is by grace alone, 7 to 11. Then James stands up and said, yeah, yeah, this grace is for all mankind. But we need to remember verses 19 to 21 that telling others requires kindness too. Okay? So salvation is by grace alone, 7 to 11. The grace is for all mankind, 12 to 18. But telling others requires kindness, 19 to 21. It's not that hard, actually. We can work through it fairly quickly. First then, in verses uh, 7 to 11, salvation, it's by grace alone. So there's been some chats, but then uh, Peter's the first one to jump up, and uh, this is what he declares, verse 7 of chapter 15. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, let me tell you what God has done. God has done a number of things. Verse 7, God, 
made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. That's all that happened. They heard, they believed, that's it. Or verse 8, uh, let me tell you again what God has done. God, who, who knows the heart, he sees within, he showed that he accepted. He testified that he, he really does accept these Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. Uh, and verse 9, here's what God did. God did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. So these, I've told you all this before, says Peter. It's recorded in Acts chapter 10. But these first Gentiles that I went to, I just explained what Jesus had done. They believed it. And God says, yep, they're the real deal. And pours his spirit into their hearts. Nothing else. They they weren't circumcised before God said, yep, they're believers. They didn't start to keep any rules before God said, yep, they're believers. It's as we sung earlier. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. They believe that moment. They believe they receive a pardon. That's it. God didn't impose any conditions. He didn't say, oh, well done. You, you, here's your signing on bonus for believing in Jesus. Now you just got to work at the law of Moses for the next 20 years. He didn't say that. He said they believed. That's it. And so verse 10, don't put God to the test. Verse 10, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke, a burden that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No one is put right with God by keeping rules. We've never been able to do it. It's a, verse 11, we believe. It's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved, just as they are. We contribute nothing. It's probably 500 years ago, the reformers uh, made very big use of this word alone. It became a quite important word. They just said, look, just to clarify what we mean, verse 11, it is through the grace of Jesus alone that we're saved. You see, you could have been at this council in Jerusalem, and uh, you've got this group from the Pharisee party, and you'd heard some rumors, and you could have uh, gone up to them and um, said... uh, Boy, I hear you. I hear you're sort of distorting the gospel. Um, you're sort of Londoner. Uh, I don't know where that's come from. Anyway, uh, oh, you, you, so you've got the gospel wrong, you Pharisees. And they say, oh, I don't think so. And you say, oh, but but do you believe that you have to believe? Is it is it by faith in Jesus that you're put right with God? Oh yes, they say. You're a bit confused, and then you clarify. Do you believe that it's by faith in Jesus alone that you're put right with God? And they say, oh no, faith in Jesus starts you and then you complete salvation yourself. Ha ha, I knew it, I knew there was something dodgy going on here. Uh, I remember hearing this uh, elsewhere. But it's that little word alone, it just clarifies. It is his work alone. That puts you right. Salvation is by faith in the gracious work of Jesus alone. And so how do you approach the Lord as a Christian? If you trust in the work of Jesus Christ, it's always boldly. I've had a bad week. I've been just 
angry all week, but you approach the Lord boldly because you approach through the grace of Jesus, not your own performance. Salvation is by grace alone. And Peter sits down. No doubt there's muttering. Verse 12, the whole assembly becomes silent. They listen to a few stories uh, from Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God has done among the Gentiles through them. And then James pops up. So if Peter stresses that the salvation is by grace alone, 7 to 11, James pushes on a bit further and says, oh yeah, and this grace is for all mankind, verses 12 to 18. Let me read uh, from verse 13 what James says. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon Peter has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement, are in agreement with this. As it's written. So James says, why are you surprised? All the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, um, Ezekiel, all of them, all of the prophets in the Old Testament, they say this is going to happen. That that God's message is going to be for the world, not just Israel and the Jews, but for the whole world. And all the prophets testify to that. Let me give you one example from, uh, from Amos, verse 16 where God said, after this I'll return and rebuild David's fallen tent, its ruins I'll rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. Two things will happen, according to Amos. Uh, The first is, God will rebuild David's tent, verse 15. Well, that's a funny old phrase, but essentially it means the Lord will rebuild the dynasty of great King David, the best or the greatest king in the Old Testament. He'll rebuild that dynasty and David's descendant is Jesus. So a new dynasty will come up under David's descendant, Jesus. That's the first thing will happen. And the second is that the rest of mankind will seek the Lord. Every varied race in every different place can seek and know the Lord Jesus. And so James quotes this to the Pharisee group and says, your vision is too small. You're just thinking in terms of Judaism getting a little bit bigger as it pulls in a few Gentiles. Your vision is too small. God's plan was the whole world, every race, at every different place not becoming like Jews, but trusting in Jesus within their own culture and expressing it within their own culture. Your vision is just too small. And you and I just need to be wary of that. Have a vision that is too small. And just thinks merely in terms of, well, I'm a Christian. It'd be nice if one or two others I knew became Christians. Well, that would be great. It'd be nice if perhaps a few more people in London became Christians. Well, that would be great. But God's vision is for the world. And it's not that we want everyone to conform and and become Christians like our sort of gatherings. We don't want to impose our culture upon anyone. But within their own traditions and cultures, people become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the same message of salvation by grace alone that does it. So that the gospel message that the Lindleys share in Mozambique is the same as Alex does in the Middle East. And the grace that the Nelsons speak of in Paris is the same grace that Pete speaks of in the Persian Gulf. 
And the gospel that the Aikenheads share with Somali Muslims in London is the same as the Oranges share with atheists in Brussels. And the grace that Jason Roach speaks of on the housing estates of Battersea, it's the same that we speak of to the businessmen in central Mayfair. It's the same message. For every different race, we just mustn't have a vision that's too small. One message of grace for the whole world. That was God's plan from long ago. So salvation is by grace alone. Uh, This grace is for all mankind. But telling others requires kindness, is James's last comment in verses 19 to 21. Here's a little twist that we need to understand. Verse 19, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles returning to God. Well, that makes sense of everything that's been said so far. Okay, it's just a message. It's just a gift of grace. It's a gift. They don't have to do anything. But then you get verse 20. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Well, that's a pretty weird list to your, uh, most of us. I'm abstain from sexual immorality. Well, that sort of makes sense. But bloody steak, what's wrong with that? It's tasty. It's good. We like it that way, some of us. Well, verse 21 explains it. Do do abstain from these four things because for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Or in other words, look, all of us in this part of the world, it doesn't matter if you're from a Gentile Greek background, you all know what the Jews find offensive because you've heard it. It'd be like in the 21st century, if I said, uh, you've got some... Orthodox, I mean, they probably wouldn't, but some Orthodox Jewish friends coming around for dinner. What's the one meat you're not going to serve them? Pork. That's right. What have we got for lunch today? Pork. The irony. Um, but there it is. But you, wouldn't, you just wouldn't serve up pork. You, know, you just wouldn't, you know that. You don't need to be a, a brilliant Talmudic scholar to know that. You just kind of know. Everyone knows that. You don't say, hey, bacon sarnies for everyone. You just don't. Um, well, that's what James is saying. Look, the law of Moses, we, we kind of know the things that are going to be offensive to a Jewish friend. We know that. And here's what they are. Meat sacrificed uh, to, to idols. Sexual immorality, they're just a much longer list in the Jewish Old Testament of, of relatives you can't marry, that sort of thing. Uh, strangled animals from, from meat with the blood running out of it. Look, we just know that, they, that Jews are going to find that offensive. They've got a tender conscience on those things. So don't needlessly cause offense, says James. Paul is the same. Chapter, chapter 15, Paul is saying, we need to have a big old discussion about this. You cannot impose conditions upon, you cannot tell anyone they've got to be circumcised if they're going to be a Christian. Chapter 16, He circumcises his mate Timothy because no one is demanding he does it as a condition. He just thinks he's going to be caused less offense. So it's whether you demand it. As one person put it, Paul was an iron pillar on gospel essentials, but a reed in the wind on non-essentials. On matters where salvation is at stake, no movement on cultural issues, well, whatever. What am I wearing? I don't care. What are we eating? Don't give a hoot. Just whatever is most sensitive to other people. 
That's the point. So James is saying here, look, Gentiles, you don't need to care about all these things, meats that's been strangled, uh, uh, meat offered to idols. Gentiles, you don't need to care about these things, but when you're sitting down with some Jewish friends, don't be offensive. Be kind. Be thoughtful. What does that mean for you and for me? Well, of course, one sense is straightforward. The, the, The one thing crosses across very easily. If you want to share the message of the grace of Jesus Christ with people from a Jewish background, don't do so over a prawn cocktail and a bacon sandwich. That's sort of fairly common sense in one's, you know. That, but if they're sort of orthodox in background or traditional in background, it's not going to be able to do that. If you want to share the message of God's grace in Jesus Christ with people from a Muslim background, just be thoughtful. Don't say, let's meet up in the pub and chat it through. Well, if they're practicing, they're not going to do that. Don't throw your Bible on the ground. They're going to think you you don't take your religion seriously because the Quran you would never put on the floor. It's just being thoughtful. If at work, you work with some colleagues who are Muslims, don't say, let's all go out for drinks after work. It's going to be isolating. Be thoughtful. Don't rough their conscience up. That's what James is asking for here. If you are going to share the gospel of God's grace with people from a sort of very traditional background, don't turn up in your board shorts and flip-flops. It's just that you don't take your religion very seriously. That's what he's talking about. Being aware culturally. The first person that sort of historically sort of in the West really got it right, the great missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, uh, as he sought to uh, share this message of grace with uh, Chinese. He was mocked by everyone who knew him in the West because he wore Chinese clothes and wore his hair in a pigtail, as all the men did at the time. And he was mocked by Westerners. But what was he saying? He was saying, the message matters. What I look like. I don't want to say to these people, become a Christian and look like me. Become a Christian and act like me. No, become a Christian and celebrate the grace of Jesus Christ and follow him. And you'll work out what that means as you read the scriptures. So for you and me, we mustn't be a church where people feel pressure to fit in, conform culturally, strong on the truth, feeble culturally. That's the way we ought to be. Practically, when we're taking the message of God's grace to a world, we don't take our culture with us. We just take the message. So here's this dispute that blows up. But the outcome, in one sense, it's, well, we won't read on to the end. But of course, the point in verse 26, uh, sorry, verse 22 onwards is, Everyone agrees this is right. Verse 22, the apostles, the elders with the whole church. Everyone agrees, yet this is right. This is right. Salvation is by grace alone. It's a gift. You don't add anything to it. There are no conditions. This grace is for all mankind. So don't have a vision that's just too small. Have a vision of a global God. 
and be kind. Be thoughtful as you share this. We must be global citizens with a global vision because our God is a global God. So very practically, please can I ask you, pray. You don't need to pick up all those cards that have been produced from mission partners, but take some. Pray. As a church, you want to be committed to still resourcing, to give. And some have got to go. 86% Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, don't know a single Christian. Some have still got to go. Let's not have a vision which is too small. This message of grace is for all humanity. Let me lead us in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, no matter how familiar we are with the message of grace, that Jesus Christ has done all we need for salvation, there's still part of us that struggles to believe it. We still think we have to contribute. Father, thank you that that grace is wonderfully free. Thank you that here in Acts 15, the whole church knew it and agreed on it. And that this is the message that went out to every race in every different place across this globe of free grace. We're saved by the grace of Jesus Christ alone. Father, would this be a a message that we have a vision that the whole world does indeed embrace and see? Would we have the great privilege of seeing many, many seek you and you rebuild not just the kingdom of David, but the dynasty of the Lord Jesus Christ, as many, many people across this globe put their faith in him. Amen.